The following is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of Chorus Entertainment. All right, man, let's go. We are set to go. We hope you are as well. John Scholes here and the Employment Law Show, your host, and with me, Stan Feinselberg, courtesy Sanfiru to Market LLP, the most positively reviewed law firm across this entire country. He's thinking, how do I reach out to Stan if I got a problem? I'll tell you right now, throughout the show, I'll keep giving you this information too. one 821 5900 help at employmentlawyer.ca. And you can also go to the website constructed just for you to use, learn and educate yourself and have access to our severance calculator that would be pocketemploymentlawyer.ca we are going to dip into the ever-expanding email bag we got lots to get through so that's going to be our concentration of the show today but we'll get into it with the uh, the thought of the day stan what's going on big fella how are you hey good morning john and good morning toronto uh for the thought of the day i wanted to talk about something that i recently saw in the paper it was a really interesting study by the canadian federation of independent businesses and what that study found john was that over the next 10 years 75 percent of small and medium-sized business owners are planning to exit or sell their companies and as you and i and all our regular listeners know there are huge implications that occur for employees and employers, obviously, but employees mm-hmm. in this context specifically, when when you're looking to sell or wind down a business. So I just wanted to give our listeners kind of a, some cliff notes on both topics. And in terms of selling a business, and I think we've touched on this many, many times, John, there's really only two ways legally that a company can sell a business. It either can sell the assets of the business or it could actually sell the shares of a corporation. And depending on the type of sale we're specifically talking about here, there are different uh, obligations for employees and different interactions with that employee's rights. So if we talk about a share purchase, well, really all you're doing is buying the entire, the, the legal entity, the same corporate entity. I like to, I like to tell, think of it as, you know, if the Walton sold Walmart shares, Bob working at Walmart, his his job doesn't change. Nothing about that job actually changes other than the owners. And so in that type of transaction, the employee's rights actually don't change at all. You continue to work for the exact same company. Your years of service continue to accrue. You know, your compensation continues to remain the same. They can't introduce any new employment contracts or new terms because there's nothing that's changed. So nothing you had been given in exchange for those new contracts or terms. But things get a little bit more nuanced when we talk about an asset purchase. An asset purchase is exactly kind of what it sounds like. Somebody comes in and buys all the assets of the corporation, but not the legal entity itself, not the shares, just the stuff. And Mm -hmm. sometimes employees are part of that stuff. And, and And one of the most fundamental things to remember about this type of sale is that every time there is an asset purchase, technically speaking, that employee is terminated by the seller. You know, legally speaking, there is a break that happens. You are going from one legal entity to another legal entity, which means that again, legally speaking, you're being terminated by the seller and hired by the buyer. 
And that creates some wrinkles for the employees and their rights because number one, it doesn't necessarily guarantee that their service will be accounted for all reasons. You know, because somebody's being hired as a new employee, that gives the buyer the opportunity to introduce a contract or to introduce new terms into the relationship and say, hey, if you want to come and work for this new company, you need to agree to these new terms. And our, our statute, the Employment Standards Act, makes a special provision for this type of situation and says, hey, if the buyer is buying the seller's assets or business in any way, you have to recognize their, the employee's service if you take on that employee. But the caveat is that you have to recognize it for the statute's purposes. So we're only talking about a person's minimum entitlements. And because you only, a buyer only has to recognize their minimum entitlements, they can have that person sign a contract that says, yeah, we recognize your start date and we recognize it for statutory purposes, but we're going to include this termination clause that limits your common law entitlements and essentially kind of screws the employee into getting only their minimums. Now, the uh, the kind of contrast to that situation that's where everything is thought out and the buyer has really done things the right way in terms of protecting their liability and the contrast to that situation would be where there really is no contract at all which happens frankly pretty frequently when you're talking about small businesses where a seller you know sells the business to the buyer the buyer says to the employer you're coming along do you want the job yep and they just continue to work from there well in that situation the law will actually imply that the seller has purchase the buy, uh, the company and transfer the employee as a going concern and has to therefore recognize their years of service for all purposes including common law purposes so those two so really that is the most important aspect i think when talking about a sale of a business from an employee's perspective what kind of sale are we talking about and what is the employee being asked to agree to this is also kind of a fundamental thing in employment law in general. You're, an employee is always better in a better situation if they have no contract. The law will always imply a contract for a relationship, and it's always more favorable for the employee than usually what's drafted by the employer. Uh, then the other situation I wanted to talk a little bit about, John, though, was about also yeah. what happens if a business just decides to shut down? What happens to an employee's rights at that point? Do they exactly. still are they still even entitled to severance? And again, this is where you have to kind of look at uh, the dichotomy of what shutdown actually means, because there's two ways again to shut close down a business. One can an, a, an employer can simply just wind down that business, decide, hey, I, I don't want to do this anymore. I'm retiring. I'm just going to sell off my stuff, and or you know, if I can't sell it all off, I'm just going to close the business and go and wind down. And the other type of way to shut down a business is, uh, unfortunately, a bankruptcy, where essentially, legally speaking, what that means is that the business has more liabilities than assets to satisfy those liabilities. And a person's entitlements, the employee's entitlements, are very different depending on what type of situation we're talking about. Again, if we're talking about bankruptcy, as I said, a bankruptcy literally means that the business doesn't have the assets, cash, inventory, what have you, to satisfy all of its outstanding creditors. That's what pushes it into either credit protection or bankruptcy. In credit protection, you have an, you have an ability to try and negotiate with your creditors to see if you can come out and see if you can actually just 
negotiate down the debt and survive the bankruptcy. But if you can't, then you're just tipped over into bankruptcy. And unfortunately, in that situation, employees often get uh, get left behind, and they're and they don't see anywhere near their full entitlements because again, the company just doesn't have the money to satisfy it. You know, whatever money they have is split between the creditors based on a priority list, and usually employees are at the bottom of that list. Uh, the one saving grace here, actually, is that the federal government has a program program called the wage subsidy, uh, wage earner subsidy, which will guarantee somebody in this type of situation at least their minimum entitlements under the Employment Standards Act, and when and technically only the notice termination pay entitlements, meaning the most somebody can get is eight weeks. Uh, but if we're talking about just a business shutting down, winding down, the owner doesn't want to do it anymore. They just lock the doors. Well, that doesn't mean that their entitlement, that employees' entitlements go away, or that that business is no longer uh, liable for its outstanding debts. And in this case, an employee's severance would become an outstanding debt. So, in that situation, you can absolutely go after that employer and make sure that they pay you your fair severance because. They have money. They're not saying they're bankrupt or need carrier protection. They're just saying they don't want to operate anymore. And the assets in the corporation, it's not that easy just to take it out. Um, in fact, when an, if an employer tried to do that, if the owner just went and bankrupted the business itself by just taking all the cash and putting it in his pocket or his bank account, that's what we call the tort of fraudulent conveyance, essentially meaning you're stealing the money from the, uh, the company to defraud your creditors. And in that situation, the person actually becomes personally liable for the debts of the company. Uh, so really interesting you know, report from the CFIB about just how much we can expect in terms of small business closures, medium-sized business closures, and you know, really something that employees need to be aware of and keep in mind if, they're, if they find themselves in that situation about their rights. And obviously, to call us and discuss it in more detail so we can help you and get you through it. You know, it's interesting though that uh, that article you mentioned. You know, the, these small business owners, a big chunk is seventy five percent looking in the next ten years to to shutter down, which I get. So therefore, it's not a bankruptcy. So they see on the horizon what their plan is. Now, if I'm an employer, whether I have one employee or one hundred employees or more, I've got I've got some time now because I'm forecasting when I'm going to shut this down. And at the end of it, I don't want this big monetary liability of paying severance to all my employees. I want to treat them well. I want to give them lots of heads up. So. Is that the proper way I would do that? Say, guys, not now. In 10 years, I'm shutting down. Just a little forecasting. But I mean, if we're a year out and I've got some longstanding employees, maybe is that the time where I say, guys, I'm giving you written notice now Mm -hmm. that by, you know, this is, this is 2027 by, you know, January, 2028, I'm locking her down. Now's when I should be doing that a year out or, or make that calculation so I can avoid the cash payment from most of these people, give them notice instead of uh, lieu of of notice rather rather than termination pay? Was that the best way to handle the employer? Absolutely, John. If if you're looking to minimize the costs of shutting Mm -hmm. down, then that really is the best way to handle it. it, it, it's, It's a tricky situation because working notice isn't for every situation, isn't for every person. You really have to trust a person if you're going to give them working notice because they do have the ability to cause significant harm to a business on their way out if they've lost morale, if they know that they're no longer working there. 
you know, it affects the way that they work ultimately. But if you believe that you have the type of employee who can persevere through that, that from an employer standpoint, that really is the best way to do it because you get the benefit of that employee's work, which you're going to need anyway. You're, you know, you're, you're forecasting a shutdown a year or two from now in any case. Mm -hmm. So you need to get there first and you get the benefit of having that person's employ, uh, entitlements kind of eaten away by the working notice. Now, the one, you know, one thing to remember here, John, is that even if you, you know, even if somebody's entitled to, let's say, 12 months and you give them 12 months working notice, if you have the, a payroll of over two, two, uh, $2.5 million and if that employee's been there for over five years, at, that end, at the end of that working, no, working notice period, no matter what, you are going to owe that person severance pay under the statute. Yep. Because yep. working notice can never satisfy severance pay. It's in the title. It's severance pay has yep. to be paid. So yep. you could actually give somebody more than they're entitled to a common law in this type of situation. But yep. generally speaking, from a seller's perspective or from a just a winding down a business perspective, if you can do it this way, it is the most cost-effective way to wind down the business. And with that, we're taking a quick break. We continue with the Employment Law Show. Stand by. You're listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of Chorus Entertainment. All righty, we're, uh, we're back at it. Thanks so much for hanging through the break. Again, your email is help at employmentlawyer.ca, which is what we're dipping into uh, heavily on the show today with the remaining time. We got lots. Let's uh, get right into it, Stan. First one is Kelsey. She says, hey, Stan, I've worked through two separate employment agencies for the same company for over 20 years. They laid me off uh, laid me off during the pandemic. And then in January, again, the employment agency, well, this time they terminated me. Is there anything I can do? Well, Kelsey, I mean, I'm assuming from your question that uh, the employment agency that would have terminated you would probably give you a package of some sort. And I think from, from your question, what I'm really reading is, you know, that there's kind of three party or three employers arguably involved here. And really what the question is, which is liable and for how much of that 20 years? Uh, and again, assuming if you're just working through two employment agencies, but for the same company for over 20 years through those employment agencies, the argument I would be making on your behalf, Kelsey, is that that company along with the employment agencies is actually your employer. Uh, it's really, you know, if you really have to think of what an employment agency is, John, to, to kind of conceptualize this, because when the ESA, when it talks about an employment agency, there's one word missing from what we're talking about, and that's the word temporary, because employment agencies are about temporary employment, filling in gaps. And it's pretty much impossible to argue that 20 years for the same company is anything close to temporary. Uh, at at certain point in that relationship, it becomes pretty clear that that company is the one that controls the relationship uh, and has all the control really over the employee. And regardless of whatever corporate scheme they've tried to create to distance themselves from the employee in that liability, you know the facts are what matter, and that's what courts really care about and look at. And you know, assuming the facts are kind of what I think they would be after 20 years, which is that employer tells you where to be, when to be there, how much money you're going to make. Uh, that's pretty much your, that is your employer at that point, and they would be liable, in my view, for the full 20 years. 
All right, we hope that uh, helped out a little bit, Kelsey. Again, you can always reach out to Stan anytime to uh, to follow up with the answer for that particular question, or you got more, have a chat. It's one eight five five eight two one fifty nine hundred. And uh, moving on down here again, we're still taking phone calls in between these chats, so uh, so have at her. Right, four one six eight seven zero sixty four hundred. Rajesh is next. Says, guys, my employer is selling the business. Well, there you go, and tells <laughs> me the buyer is going to hire me. However, it's been almost two months, and I haven't heard anything from the buyer. Can I still go after my former employee? What do you think, Stan? Yeah, very timely question, Rajesh, and uh, talking about a topic that we did, uh, we touched on just a moment ago. So uh, based on this question, John, I mean, the first thing I would presume is that we're talking about an asset purchase. Because again, if you're talking just about a share purchase, there wouldn't be any of this, He's the buyer's going to hire me. You just go with the shares. You just show up the next day and continue workings. So... From that, I have to believe this is an asset purchase. And in terms of what Rajesh is saying, I mean, it really just sounds like he's being kind of screwed over by both the seller in this situation and the buyer. You know, if if the seller, now we don't know what the, the circumstances are, maybe that the buyer has promised the seller that he's going to hire him and has just reneged. Oftentimes, when, th- when you're doing these type of transactions, the seller and the buyer will actually have a clause in the asset uh, and purchase agreement, the agreement between the two parties that actually says that, hey, buyer, you have to offer my employees jobs. And that's usually done so that the seller, again, has less liability in that situation. Uh, But in here, from what Rajesh is saying, I mean, it just sounds like nothing has happened you know the seller has made him a promise that obviously he can't keep it's no longer right. the seller's business the buyer has made no in, you know as far as we're aware has indicated no intention of doing anything and really in this situation i would just say it's a straight termination you know the sale of the business doesn't almost factor in because all that happened was that the employee got terminated and has no job that's a termination and the seller owes the employee their entitlements at common law at that point when does the metric change where it becomes the obligation of the buyer to sell the, or to pay the uh, termination, to pay the severance? When does that happen? Well, firstly, if it was a share purchase, again, if it was a share purchase, then the employee comes along with the shares. And even if the buyer doesn't want to, even if they fire them two days after they buy the business, you're still, you still have to account for that employee's full length of service with the seller. Uh, it may also change in the circumstance that I mentioned, which is that there's an asset and purchase sale agreement, which specifically says that the buyer now ha- uh, has agreed to hire the employees. Now, if they renege on that provision, technically the buy- the seller is still liable to the employee because the employee is not a party of- to that contract, right? Between the buyer and seller. He doesn't care about that. He doesn't even frankly usually know about that. Uh, all he knows is that he's owed money and he goes to the seller and says, hey, you, you terminate me, you owe me money. Now the seller, if assuming they have that type of contract, will then turn around and say, hey, buyer, we had an agreement, you reneged on it, This now my employee wants money and I'm going to sue you because you reneged on this agreement and are liable for what this employee now is owed. Those are the situations I would say in which the buyer becomes liable or has or takes on some liability the other unique you know situation actually and this is addressed slightly in the statute as well is if if there's a sale of a business you don't hire the employee right away but you hire them within 13 weeks so if you hire that employee within 13 weeks of the sale happening 
it's considered that you you transferred over from from the seller as there is no new employment relationship there there it's continuous employment based on the statute and you have to recognize their service for statutory purposes now it's all starting to make sense. Again, if you have any questions about this or anything else, you're confused, don't sit there confused. Call uh, Stan anytime. He's got a great team with him as well. 1-855-821-5900. Email we're uh, using all show here is the one we use every time on the show all week, and that is uh, help at employmentlawyer.ca. Danny, coming up next, says, guys, I refused to get the vaccine for religious reasons, but my employer would not budge and terminated me without anything. Is this discrimination and or a wrongful dismissal? Stan, what do you think? You know, very interesting high questions, something that's working its way through the courts as we speak, and mm-hmm. not a lot of guidance as of yet. Um, but there has been some sprinkles, you know, some a few things that the courts have said which can kind of high, illuminate what Danny is talking about. And there's been at least one arbitration case that actually dealt with a nurse of all people, probably the most high-risk setting you could think of in terms of COVID. And, and in that case, that nurse also put forward a religious exemption request based on her religious beliefs that was also denied by the hospital. And the arbitrator actually agreed with the nurse and said that she should have been given the exemption. Now, there's always context to this. Her religion was very, you know, is a very specific denomination. So I don't think it can be extrapolated to every situation. But it kind of shows you some of what the arbitrators and courts would be thinking in the situation. And that you really have to consider these religious exemption requests fairly. And again, under the, under the employer's obligations under the code, a lot of, you know, from my experience, a lot of times when employers were, were dealing with these types of situations, they just offhand dismiss them saying, listen, every, you know, there's no religious leader out there who said that you can't take vaccines. The Pope has, hasn't said that, you know, no other religious leaders have said that. So there's no exemption here. And, and that's a bit too simplistic a analysis, I would say. And also the courts have said, because Religion is very much a individual and subjective practice at the end of the day. It's about what that person believes. It's not about what the Pope believes. And if that person has sincerely held beliefs that interact and have a nexus with the policy in question, then you really have to analyze and determine if that nexus is, you know, does exist to such an extent that you can impose this policy or if there's some way to accommodate it. Because oftentimes there were ways to accommodate these types of, uh, of policies. The one that jumps to head, into my head you know, immediately is a testing regime. Many companies, not even just for religious or medical exemption purposes, but just as a part of their policy, said you can either get vaccinated, but if you don't want to, you can test on a regular basis, produce negative tests, and we'll let you keep working. That is a very, very reasonable alternative, in my view, that safeguards what the employer wants, which is the safety of the public and its employees in the workplace, and provides an alternative to the employee instead of having to, in this case, arguably violate their religious beliefs. So absolutely, I think it can amount to discrimination. Again, it very much depends on context. Uh, From a wrongful dismissal side, that one, there's, you know, again, been a case that has come out that essentially said that, look, you can't really terminate somebody for refusing to take the vaccine. Uh, and the logic goes something like this, John. 
most, I think almost every company I've seen talking about who have instituted this type of policy have always talked about it in terms of personal choice because right. they know they right. can't say, well, we're forcing you to do it. So what they say it's, is it's your choice, but your choice has consequences. And, you know, if you choose wrong, you're not going to have a job. Hmm. Well, that's not really a choice, isn't it? And, <laughs> and more so, it, it, when we're talking about cause and firing someone, what we're really talking about, again, is misconduct, willful misconduct, somebody engaging in some type of conduct that is so egregious that the employer essentially gets to say, you've destroyed the relationship and we don't owe you any money and we can never continue again. Well, the court that analyzed this technically was an arbitrator, but the arbitrator that analyzed this said, well, listen, if it's a personal choice and you're saying to them it's their choice to make, how could that amount to misconduct? How could you punish somebody for a, a voluntary choice that you admit they have the right to make? So in that context, essentially, the arbitrator found that you can't just terminate people yeah, you know, what the arbitrator suggested was that it made much more sense to try to put somebody on unpaid leave and and to kind of evaluate the situation as circumstances dictated. The the other thing to remember with these vaccine cases, John specifically, is that it's kind of a, a strange scenario where we're really looking at a snapshot in time. We're not, you know, most of these terminations happened in the fall of 2021 or winter of 2022. And or or these unpaid leave situations because lots of people right. got put on unpaid leave as well. So we're looking at a snapshot in that period of time, but you know, obviously we're a few years ahead now and we've got additional information that illuminates what we knew or didn't know about COVID and about the preventative measures and about these policies and about the vaccines and everything. And the interesting situation that from from my perspective particularly is how long, you know, if the court agrees that you could put somebody in unpaid leave, well, how long can that leave last? Is it right. forever? Because I don't believe it could be forever. And I think we have some very clear milestones, which you can point to, to say, well, it should have ended at this point. For example, you know, in March of 2022, the provincial government essentially removes all restrictions and barriers related to COVID, whether, you know, in terms of masking requirements, in terms of vaccine requirements from a provincial sector uh, perspective. That's, for example, that's when all the teacher vaccine mandates kind of melted away. Uh, why isn't that an appropriate point in which to bring somebody back? Or another example is in the summer and in the end of July of 2022, which is when the emergency declaration itself kind of lapses and gets rescinded gotcha. and isn't ended. Well, if it's no longer an emergency, why isn't that the appropriate time to bring them back? So, you know, really interesting questions, Danny. A lot of it is making its way through the courts and we'll hopefully have some answers soon. But right now we're all just, you know, giving our best hypothetical uh, estimates of what we expect. Thanks, Danny. We've got to take a short break. Back to more. Claire, Jason, Albert, see you guys as well. Again, help at employmentlawyer.ca. And we're coming right back with more of the Employment Law Show. You're listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of Chorus Entertainment. Alrighty, back at her. And uh, Stan Fainzelberg is here taking all of your calls, answering your questions, courtesy Sam Fu to Mark and LLP. I want to reach out to Stan anytime. You can email, which is what we're going through on the show today, help at employmentlawyer.ca and reach Stan's team, one 821 
5,900 rolling down the emails, pal. Claire is up next, says, my department is being outsourced to another company, and this new company wants me to stay on as a contractor. Is that even legal, Stan? Well, you know, again, I, uh, I'll start with the caveat, the context matters, and you'd need to know the details. But generally speaking, John, if you're doing the exact same, if you're doing a job on Friday as an employee and doing the exact same job on Monday as a contractor, Nothing has really changed other than the paperwork around you. You, mm. you know, from from a tax perspective, that might be fine. There might be re- legitimate reasons for that. But from an employment perspective, you know, they don't. The courts don't really care that much about what papers say and what they call a, an employee or contractor, if you will. What they care about is the nature of the relationship and really trying to determine. You know, is this a contractor relationship or is this an employment relationship? And in that scenario that I gave, if you're doing the exact same job, it's likely an employment relationship. But to take it one step further, John, you know, I, Claire doesn't have to be too worried in either case because as a contractor, if she's only working for a single entity, that's what we would call a dependent contractor who is still entitled to their same entitlements as an employee. So in either situation, her entitlements are preserved. You know, what I think would probably come up as the main issue in her, in her case, John, is this question of, is she a new employee with the, con- with the contractor company or can she uh, get her previous years of service recognized as well? And, you know, this is not quite a sale of business situation, but it's actually not as different as you might think because the, the same provision that I talked about in the statute the Employment Standards Act that dealt with sale of business, well, it technically also includes a transfer because it has a very broad definition of a sale of business. And this arguably would fall within that definition. So you can, you have a pretty strong argument to say not only is she an employee, not a contractor, or even if she is, she's a dependent contractor, but her previous years of service count if she were terminated in the future for the purposes of calculating her her entitlements at that point. So at all, at all, well, not at all costs, but I guess if there's a new employment agreement thrown at her from this, uh, from this department or this company, they decide, hey, we're, you know, we're going to rewrite our employment contracts because we listen to the show and we don't want to get, we don't get hooked before signing anything. Claire's got to send that to you, right? And have you, uh, have you go over it for sure? Because guaranteed there's going to be some pitfalls in there for the employee, this, this being Claire this time. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, really any time I would say, John, if that an employer is introducing a new contract, you have to question why that is. Uh, oftentimes, it's kind of, you know, the reasoning is obvious, right? Like a person gets a promotion and sure. they get a new contract with that promotion. Mm-hmm. Do they have to have the new contract? No, you'd rather not. As I said, the best situation an employee can be in is having absolutely no written documented contract. But there, you know, it makes sense. But if an employer is just coming to you and saying, hey, sign this piece of paper, you have to question why that is. And, you know, the biggest red flag I, I notice whenever I'm looking for at these contracts is if there's a new contract being introduced out of the blue and there's a signing bonus given to you. And that signing bonus is usually a pittance, like a couple of hundred bucks. Sure. But that pittance is enough in ter- from a legal perspective to make that contract mm-hmm. binding. So if you're, you know, it's great to have, nobody's going to say no to a few hundred bucks, but if you're giving up thousands and thousands of potential dollars with a termination clause in exchange for a few hundred bucks, you really have to determine, is that a a fair bargain? 
and have that contract reviewed to at least understand exactly what you're giving up. Again, you can throw that uh, to, to Stan and his team anytime you want to have it uh, looked at quickly, no problem, and reach out for further consultation, help at employmentlawyer.ca or 1-855-821-5900. Jason, next email up, he's just taking us back to uh, Employment Law 101, says, mm-hmm. is the general rule of thumb two weeks severance for every year I work there? Is that still true? Well, Jason, there really is no general rule of thumb uh, when it comes to employment law. What you're talking about is, you know, shades of what a person's minimum entitlements can be uh you know and again we're talking about somebody's minimums under the statute certainly not their maximum uh so i would generally you know two weeks is usually pretty low unless you're talking about a really lengthy employment relationship in which case you know the longer the relationship the less proportionally per year they get uh but if really outside of like a 20 year relationship, I would say two weeks is going to be a low amount for any employee. Uh, and certainly I don't think that would be appropriate, Jason. Then you should give us a call to find out what your real entitlements are. Again, Jason, that is a one 821 5900 Thanks, pal. Appreciate the email. Albert says, guys, can an employer terminate you while you're on a disability leave? Well, they can, but should they? <laughs> yeah. Well, they they can, uh, and you know, in some circumstances, it's it's certainly not problematic. You know, you have to distinguish between whether you're being terminated while on disability leave or whether you're being terminated because of the disability right. leave. Because one is discrimination, and one is you know an unfortunate circumstance. So, for, you know, for an example, if an employee is on a disability leave and their department gets eliminated, or a hundred out of one hundred and ten people in that department get eliminated. Uh, and that person gets eliminated along with those other people, well, that's a legal way to terminate somebody who's on a disability leave because it's not related to the disability leave. It's clearly a restructuring going on without the, within the company that really has nothing to do with that employee. Um, now, you know, I guess there, it actually becomes a little bit of a more interesting and nuanced situation as these things tend to be, John, where the question becomes well i have certain entitled i have certain protections under the employment standards act so yep. if you're eliminating you know 10 out of 20 people should that employee get a kind of uh get to skip the line you know super priority and say well i'm on disability leave and it's a protected leave under the esa so therefore you can't terminate me okay it's an interesting question john that i'm actually dealing with in the current case but I don't. I haven't seen a particularly persuasive answer for. I think there's strong arguments to be made in both both directions, and, and that's where again the nuance of law kind of gets played out. But there's a general rule. You know, you have to distinguish between are you being terminated because of the leave or just while you happen to be on leave. Gotcha. With that, we'll take uh, one final break here and get into the rest of the hour. We'll continue with our emails and cleaning out the old inbox. Help at employmentlawyer.ca. We'll continue the Employment Law Show. Stand by. You're listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of Chorus Entertainment. Rolling on till the uh, top of the hour and uh, you're having some problems at work or something you've always want to know about employment law. This is a show and has been for the last 10 years for you to chime in and get some answers. Stan Fanselberg is your guide, lawyer, San Fiora, Tamarkin, LLP, of course, handling all your employment law matters when we're not doing the show as well. one 821 
5900 is how you uh, call Stan after the show. Any other time, help at employmentlawyer.ca. We'll get to a call here in a moment. Just want to get to Robert's email first. It says, guys, I was terminated after 12 years of service. I was a, it was a technical role, and I'm in my 40s. I was offered 25 weeks severance, Stan. Is that fair? John, I can't help but notice, you know, similar to the question that we had earlier being asked by Jason, that uh, mm-hmm. 25 weeks is almost two weeks per year of service. Or, so, again, kind of in line with this general thinking that two weeks is the, the rule of thumb. And again, Robert, I would say that 25 weeks is probably not a fair package in your situation. Um, you know, based on the information in your email, I would expect something closer to about a month per year. So, I, 25 weeks is low it's keep in mind it's very possible assuming your employer has over um, a 2.5 million dollar payroll that the least amount of money they can offer you is 20 weeks so if the least they can offer you is 20 all they're really doing is offering you five on top of that they're not actually offering you 25. Yeah, it makes sense. And again, uh, Robert, we always tell you uh, beyond the, even, even before the phone call to Stan, you can reach out to uh, go to pocketemploymentlawyer.ca and wander around that website. You'll have access to the severance calculator, which is free. In fact, 2 million plus people have used it and checked it out. So again, uh, Robert, you can do that, pocketemploymentlawyer.ca. I want to get uh, Nelson on the line. Hi, Nelson. Thanks for taking the time today. How are you? I'm doing all right. How are you doing? No worries, mate. What's uh, What's your question? Uh, my question is, I work for a pretty big company, but every time that they bring in new product or they change some procedure, like uh, let's say they, they change an acetone for another another volume or another solvent, they'll ask you to sign a paper. They'll come around and make sure that here, here's the procedure, we're going to change this and you want to sign it. And now... I'm just wondering, every time I sign that paper, I feel like I'm giving my rights away. Well, I would say, you know, that paper probably isn't you giving your rights away per se. Again, it depends on the change because the first question is, is the change fundamental? If it's a fundamental change, then yes, you could be giving your rights away in terms of a constructive dismissal because if it's a fundamental change, you can either agree to it or you can treat it as a termination. But if it's just small changes and within management's inherent and implicit authority, then by signing that paper, you're not giving anything away. Really, the purpose there is just to acknowledge that you've seen the policy, you under, you've read the policy, and you are now aware of the new procedures and processes in place. And that just goes in your file and something they can possibly rely on down the road if for whatever reason you, know, you screw up in, in terms of this new process. They can hold hold up that paper and say, well, look, you agreed, you read it, you knew it, so you should be doing better, and maybe hold it against you then. More of a disciplinary process, I guess. Yeah, I mean, in and of itself, it's not a disciplinary letter, but it can be used to support a disciplinary action in the future. Yeah. So by signing that, I'm not giving my rights away. I'm just okay, acknowledging Again, I, I would say it depends on the change because, you know, like, let's, I don't know which change you're talking about. If they came to you and said, hey, we, you know, you work Monday, Friday, now we want you to work night shift Saturday uh, and Sunday on top of that, you know, then that's a fun, that's clearly a fundamental change and one you don't have to agree to. But if you do agree to it, then you have given up your right to sue them and claim constructive dismissal. All right. Okay, thanks. 
Thanks for the answer. That's yeah, man. Awesome. Thanks, Nelson. Appreciate your uh, appreciate your time today. Again, further conversation with Stan can be had anytime you would like. You can email help at employmentlawyer.ca and one 821 5900 Nelson's the number you want to use. Anytime going forward, we've got a couple minutes to go here, so we'll uh, probably wrap it up with Bob's email. I guess Bob says, hey, guys, my employer gave me a month of working notice. I guess that's the first issue. I have an interview in Halliburton, and she denied my request for time off for that interview. Is that allowed? Mm-hmm. No, I mean, Bob, it really isn't allowed, and it kind of undermines and is antithetical to the idea of working notice. And, and frankly, that's the kind of situation where a court will either say, well, that working notice doesn't count, because it's not real working notice. You didn't give the person an actual opportunity to go out and try to replace their job that you're giving them notice that they're losing. Or it potentially gives you the ability to say, well, you know, this is the employer is no longer acting in good faith and I don't have to stay out and work out this period anymore if you're not going to cooperate with me and give me the opportunity to actually go and replace the job that you're taking away. So I, I would say that's not allowed by the employer and gives you uh, some options, Bob. Bob, a quick one right there. I think we've got time for maybe one more quickly. Let's get to uh, Alexis down here. It says the Ontario government website says I have to wait five years before I'm eligible for severance. What? Is that true? Yeah, Alexis. And there's a lot of confusion some t- uh, around these types of terms like severance because it's so interchangeable, John. You know, in in a lot of ways, severance is a very ambiguous term that just means money you're owed uh, upon termination. But in one very specific way, it means something very specific, and that's in terms of the statute, the Employment Standards Act. And I've mentioned this a few times on the show already. But again, listeners, if your company has a payroll of $2.5 million, and if you've been there for over five years, then under the statute, you are entitled to severance pay. But that is only talking again about the statute and severance pay in that situation. Gotcha. And with that, we are done, guys. Stan, awesome as always. You can reach out to Stan now that we are complete, and you can do so at one 821 5900 That is the number. It's help at employmentlawyer.ca through email and that website one more time. Always uh, free and anonymous for you to enjoy and use pocketemploymentlawyer.ca. We'll catch you next time. Employment Law Show. The preceding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of Chorus Entertainment.